listeners, welcome to the Morning Report podcast supported by the St. Paul's Hospital Foundation. I'm Daniel Ennis, today's host. I'm joined by Drs. Barry Kasson, Stefan Voye, and Vesna Mihailovic. And today we're talking about a patient that uh, Dr. Kasson and I saw a couple of years ago, and it was a really startling case at that time because of the severity of the symptoms and the lack of warning before symptoms began. So we'll get into it. If this is acute whipples, I'm going to be very, (laughs) very upset. It isn't. This is Mr. H. He's a gentleman in his mid-50s with a medical history remarkable for seronegative rheumatoid arthritis. That was diagnosed in 2011, and this case takes place in 2015. And his arthritis typically affected his shoulders, elbows, wrists, ankles, knees, with some arthralgias of the small joints of the hands, but no clearly apparent inflammatory arthritis. His serology is done around the time of diagnosis. He was seronegative, meaning he was rheumatoid factor negative. He was also anti-CCP negative. His ANA was moderately elevated at 2.8, and his SSA was also moderately elevated at 134, where the upper limit of normal on that assay, I believe, was 100. He also has a background of persistent uh, cytopenias. So he has neutropenia of 0.5 to 0.9, thrombocytopenia that was really mild, it was about 120, and splenomegaly, and that was had been going on since about 2009. And actually the comment by the treating rheumatologist was wondering about whether this counted as Felty's syndrome in the context of the autoimmune diagnosis. He was seen by hematology, he had a bone marrow biopsy on multiple occasions, uh, which did not identify any underlying hematologic malignancy, it actually was essentially normal or reactive. In terms of medications, he was just being treated with hydroxychloroquine uh, for his arthralgias, arthritis, with significant effect. He was also on amlodipine for high blood pressure. And in terms of his social history, he works as a mechanic, but he doesn't have any other relevant exposures or other social history. And he doesn't have any relevant family history and certainly nothing similar to what we see in the case. So he was doing well until May of 2015. And at that time, he presented to hospital with acute onset right flank pain associated with nausea and vomiting. A CT scan at that time revealed renal hemorrhage and retroperitoneal hematoma. And actually, maybe we'll stop at that point right there. So I am curious because we have people from kind of various approach backgrounds. So Vesna is going to be a cardiology fellow. Steph does a lot of ICU care. Dr. Kasson sees exclusively nonsense and (laughs) (laughs) exclusively weird cases. Um, Just this presentation alone, I think you would probably all have very different initial approaches to management. Can I just say one thing about this patient? Because the thing that surprised me is that he he, he was symptom-free predominantly between for long periods of time. So even though he carried the diagnosis of seronegative arthritis, he didn't have any physical findings that would suggest rheumatoid arthritis. And he was prolonged symptom-free, not even using, not using non-steroidals or anything else to improve his symptoms. Other than the Plaquenil, which the, he had. Yeah, the Plaquenil, but he would he'd be long yeah, right. periods of time. Mm-hmm. So he was under very good control. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm here as, as uh, like, continuing education, I would say, like, Barry is an incredible physical specimen, but he's not going to work forever. So at some point, someone is going to have to see these cases, and, uh, and I don't see anyone else stepping forward, so it may be me. I don't have any clever thoughts just yet. Like, so the seronegative arthritis, I am assuming that this diagnosis, there's not a lot of question marks around it. But the pattern is really unusual. Like, like for me to just say this is seronegative RA, that's fine. You can have seronegative RA, but it doesn't even look like RA. Hmm. But in that he's being very well controlled on single agent Plaquenil, which is not that common. And that the pattern of his arthritis is also not typical, you know. Mm-hmm. What, I know what would you have expected? Instead? More small joint involvement, which he doesn't have, which, you know, again, you can have seronegative arthritis with predominantly not small joint involvement. So that's fine. But I don't know. So that one, I'm, I'm sort of like, let's all call it seronegative RA. That's fine. But um, I'm putting like a small question mark next to that diagnosis because... Uh, like we've already made an allusion to this being a weird case. So some of the weirdness may come from a mislabeling, an accidental mislabeling error early on. 
you know, so one day I'm just going to present a case that's just, it's diabetes, and it started that way and it ended that way. It's going to be, and we're going to mess it And you're going to mess it. Yeah. Gonna, so let me get this straight. <laughs> Are we sure this is diabetes? So, okay, so, and then the cytopenias and the splenomegaly, so is that all packaged in together? Maybe. But I, you know, so so these are unexplained things. So the acute presentation is flank pain with imaging that suggests renal hemorrhage and retroperitoneal hemorrhage. So I'm going to say, okay, like the renal hemorrhage and the retroperitoneal hemorrhage, that's one thing. So some, somehow he started to bleed from a kidney. And the right flank pain, I'm going to say, is from that. So I'm going to lump all those things together. Why did that happen in the absence of trauma? I mean, you can get like you can get renal infarcts that bleed spontaneously. Renal cysts bleed spontaneously. Uh, but I'm not, you're not like, I haven't clued into a syndromic diagnosis here where someone would have rheumatoid arthritis or some other connective tissue disease or autoimmune condition that then starts to spontaneously bleed from their kidneys. Like, yeah. I don't... So maybe you, you're eliciting the, you're reverse questioning me. Yes, a better question is, do you think that the past medical history and everything is related to this presentation or not? And you're saying that there's no like one entity that nicely wraps all this up. No, I'm not saying that there isn't one. I'm oh. saying that I don't know one. <laughs> those are two, I those would are be, two very different no things. No apparent one. Yeah. Okay. I'd be curious if um, an aneurysm might explain it all. So some form of vasculitis, whether that could explain all of it. But I don't have a particular illness script in mind at this time. So I think the other thing that uh, I think that Stefan is, is alluding to is that the, the pancytopenia and the previous diagnosis and then the potential diagnosis of Felties is uh, although you didn't say it they're, they're usually seropositive right so so that's another factor that yeah. would suggest maybe I mean maybe we're not dealing with rheumatoid arthritis but maybe we are it's just an unusual form I'd also say like in my limited experience like seronegative um, RA I, I think sometimes that is the label given to idiopathic polyarticular inflammatory type arthritis mm-hmm. of no other known subtype. And um, I, I do get a sense from the notes from this the, the treating physician here, it was being called in inflammatory arthritis uh, for most of the treatment period. And it was re- the seronegative RA label, it, it kind of gets put on a l- little bit later. I think not by the treating rheumatologist it is actually put on I think when this person comes to other medical attention so I think like they what what I infer from that is that that physician also shared like a similar discomfort with like well like rheumatoid arthritis very frequently affects the MCPs or MTPs like it rarely spares them it can but there's other weirdness that we're making this rarer and rarer Mm-hmm. Or a rarer version of seronegative RA, which is maybe somewhere around 25% of all RAs. Okay. An idea occurred to me as you were talking. So vasculitis, totally. Love it. I like that idea. What about lupus? Just lupus. Like, couldn't lupus do all of this? Hmm. Interesting. So right. lupus, what I mean is like the polyarticular inflammatory arthritis arthralgia problem could be lupus. The cytopenias can be lupus. The splenomegaly can be lupus. The flank pain could be from like a renal infarct from a thrombophilic event. And then, and then Bob's your uncle. We're done. Hey. What is it? It's only we've only been here ten minutes. We're Solved done. it. Yeah, we're done. I think we can go. But I mean, down. I just I, I guess like yeah. So now I'm trying to trying to force myself to link all of these things like mm-hmm. Occam's razor. This and yeah, maybe just lupus. Maybe just lupus and the hypercoagulable. Does that sound crazy? No, that sounds yeah, totally sounds reasonable. reasonable. But again, we're here discussing this case. This is like Barry would have knocked that out in five minutes in the clinic. So I'm sure that it's not lupus only because of those circumstances. Hey, maybe it's lupus. Maybe it's lupus. We'll see. Okay. So he undergoes a right nephrectomy. And I'll give you the pathology up front. So this pathology was read initially, and then this is the reread of that pathology because the case will eventually progress, as we'll get to. But this is the reread. So this is the best version of this that you get. There is focal acute necrotizing arteritis with secondary focal hemorrhagic infarction. That is the diagnosis that is provided by pathology, but it says see comment. And in the comment, it actually elaborates on that and makes it maybe less clear, but maybe a more thorough review. It says, 
This suggests that either there's localized acute necrotizing arteritis involving one artery with secondary hemorrhagic infarction, or that the primary event is hemorrhage with secondary infarction and inflammation. Helpful. <laughs> well, no, it's not. It's not unhelpful. Like I mean, because we're. It is what it is. So, so let's say the thought had crossed our mind that there was a renal infarct, because I don't think you can otherwise bleed from your kidneys spontaneously in that many different ways, right? You can bleed from a renal infarct, or from a ruptured aneurysm or something. I'm not aware of an exploding organ disease. <laughs> <laughs> so, so then, kind of like we're talking about. So this is either going to be a vasculitic problem or a thrombotic problem. So I do th- I do think like they're just sort of confirming where we were at in our heads our our differential diagnosis mm-hmm. from among at least two different processes. I don't think that's so it's not clinching anything but it's it's uh like we have something to work with. It's a clue. It's a yeah, step in like, the right direction. It's so, not it didn't come back saying completely normal. <laughs> so we're doing, you know, all the time we're doing like a an in, like there's this investigative train that's running and and sort of a therapeutic train. I have like no clue about the therapeutic thing other than taking the guy's kidney out. But the investigative thing, I think ideas are kind of popping into probably everyone's head right now like he needs a vasculitis workup of some description and he needs uh, like a thrombophilia workup, you know. So at least there are things that we can start to do, and we do. I bet I don't doubt it. I, I bet even that the second read of the pathology came from you. You we went did. down there and forced some poor pathologist to read it again. And we did. And you did. So that, you're right. That's coming, um, but not quite yet. So he is actually doing really. He is doing well. He stabilizes immediately. He tolerates the surgery well. He is otherwise feeling systemically well. Um, So he's discharged from hospital. Workup is left to outpatient, and that hasn't been done just yet, but we will get to that. So that was in May. And then in August, same year, he develops new abdominal pain with hemodynamic instability. This is a more diffuse abdominal pain, not so much flank pain. He represents to hospital and had a CT scan showing right lower hepatic bleed with massive hemoperitoneum. He underwent laparotomy and lobectomy, and the surgeon also resected a, sec- a section that he described as physically looking like an arteriovenous malformation of the liver. He was ma- managed with massive transfusion, but he stabilized. Pathology from the liver specimen, including what the surgeon thought was AVM, just essentially showed large hematoma. There was nothing specific about that biopsy at all. So there's no new information that you can get from that surgery and and tissue. Why did you throw in the part about the surgeon thinking that he saw an AVM? Because that came up quite a bit in the case, and you've already mentioned that, like, that was your first thought, Vasna, was that, is this just a rupture of an aneurysm nobody knew about, which is a totally reasonable thought. That's a very good reason to have random bleeds in an otherwise well person. And this kind of felt like maybe that fit then, like, oh, like, we didn't see any aneurysms before because he popped out any blood, and now we're finding... We are finding an aneurysm this time. So maybe that like felt like a harmonious or parsimonious like explanation for the whole case. Anyways, we didn't get a pathology back mm. that confirms the surgeon's impression. So for diagnosing an AVM, again, I'm going to assume that the pathologist does that better in the lab than the surgeon does it in the operating room. I think I assumed that. Oh, I, no. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Uh, that, that's not a clue to a change in diagnosis. <laughs> no, no, I, 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 I agree with you. Yeah, I think, but I, think I haven't that is like, the assumption. I haven't checked that literature. But and between, I, I have assumed that. Between his uh, first presentation and second presentation, did he ever have a CTA of the abdomen to look at his vasculature? No. Uh, not as far as I'm aware. He, okay. he had just completely stabilized. So I think everyone thought he was doing quite well. I believe he was probably awaiting some outpatient workup. He's from a remote area, so he doesn't have uh, rapid access to broader services. And so you mentioned that this part that the surgeon thought was an AVM was not, but what what did the the lobectomy, like the lobe, look like? Oh, to the surgeon? No, to on pathology, what did the lobe that they took out look like? Was there any arteritis? Yes, that is my question. So the formal report, the final diagnosis, just shows subcapsular organizing hematoma and adjacent liver parenchyma with nonspecific reactive changes. There's no evidence of vasculitis or neoplasm identified. No evidence of vasculitis. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
just this bleed. Did this one get reread as well? I think this was. I think everyone thought this one was probably right the first time. Okay. Not reread. Okay. Or was Barry just in the lab reading it with them? <laughs> yeah. He oversaw that. Yeah, I oversaw he that. He oversaw the lobectomy. Was, and then <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. I wouldn't recognize. So no, you <laughs> wouldn't recognize. Um, no arteritis on that second one. No. Okay. Just reactive changes. So, and okay. between times, between the first operation and the second operation, as just to reemphasize, he's totally fine. He goes from one catastrophe to the next catastrophe with basically no warning. Okay. Thrombophilia is, is uh, like still an appealing diagnosis to me. Like mm-hmm. He's clotting things off and then they're infarcting and bleeding. I mean, he's in his 50s. Like if he was going to have a like a vascular problem, an aneurysmal problem, that it would all of a sudden start in his 50s to me. And that even none of them in the head, like they're in these weird places, kidney and liver. I'm still feeling like thrombo. Well, Vesna is not happy, which makes me unhappy. You got a frown there. Yeah, that sure. was frowny face, Vesna. Vesna, what do you think? I, I did have a frowny face, but uh, I'm not sure where else to go. I'm wondering if, if there's an infection with a parasite or something where there's a cycle for this parasite. <laughs> You sound like me on my ID rotation. (laughs) Where then you could have some form of vasculitis transiently and then hemorrhage. But this probably doesn't make sense. So you're like what you're trying to do. I I think that's that's really that's imaginative and innovative. But in between times, he's totally well. He's totally fine. But I think Vesna is saying, is there a life cycle to whatever this if there's an organism? Mm -hmm. And it's that is that what's what was the time in between? It was May was the first event and August was the second event. Three months. And I, what I what I hear you doing is you're trying to sequence the uh, event. Is it that there was inflammation and then it bled, which seems like a natural consequence of vasculitis or maybe vasculopathy or inflammation that left some kind of vasculopathy after it left or in between flares? Or is it it bled first and then there's these reactive changes second? which is kind of the question that was raised by the pathology in the first place, is they can't sequence this, these events for us based on the tissue that we have. And I would say just like the liver pathology, it didn't show any of the things that were seen in the first, um, in, in the first pathology. I don't know what to do with that. I don't know if like that's telling, like, oh, like it's definitely not vasculitis, vasculopathy, or is it just like, oh, it's just sampling error, like we just didn't catch enough arteries mm-hmm. uh, or veins to like get a sense of arteritis thrombosis situation shall we carry on and he's getting some blood work presumably during these admissions like they're doing blood cultures we know that he doesn't have a mm. he I'm, does i'm not certain that he had blood cultures uh, you may you may recall I'll, so i'll fill you in on yeah. the invest so so at this point with the second organ down or involved, he gets transferred to um, a larger center for broader workup and uh, and management. And so here's the summary of the investigations that he has kind of walking in the door. Here's his autoimmune, here are the things that are positive. So he has an ANA that's 2.8, which we know, an SSA of 134. His INR is a little bit elevated, having received no anticoagulation. It fluctuates between 1.3 and 1.5 as an outpatient. He had an anti-cardiolipin antibody that first tests at an IgG of 38.2 and then an IgG of 26.4 on retest. It's about three months later. The only other positive items are that his IgG level, uh, quantitative IgG, was 19, which is elevated, and his Ig is 4.66, also elevated. His IgM, however, is normal. Did he have an IgG4? There's no subclasses of IgGs available. And we'll come back to that comment because that's important. Here's the rest of his workup. So he has a normal C3 and C4. He has negative cryos, GBM, basement membrane, ANCAs. His CRP is subtly elevated at 6.9. His lupus anticoagulant, his beta-2 glycoprotein mixing study, coag factor levels, ristocetin cofactor, von Willebrand levels, bone marrow biopsy, SPEP, flow cytometry, HIV and hepatitis serologies were normal or negative. He underwent a CT of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis, which identified a right-sided pleural effusion. 
and an enlarged spleen at 17 centimeters, which my impression is, is that it was known to be large before and that this is somewhat bigger. Not dramatic, but, but increased compared to before. The pleural effusion, I believe, was relatively small. He was investigated by rheumatology, hematology, nephrology, and internal medicine. And everyone scratched their heads, and essentially it was unclear what the diagnosis was. Was that at our hospital? It was. Yeah. Barry must not have been on. <laughs> he, he was involved later on. How long was he here? He was here for, I, I think, over a month. He was here really? for a month in, in the August part. He'll... Uh, he'll come back well better than not coming back i suppose okay well so we'll keep going so hold on so mm -hmm. so the relevant things are that you've just added are that he's got baseline elevation in the inr that with coagulation studies that don't fix don't, don't correct with mixing he's got a factor deficiency oh sorry his mixing study was normal they correct was normal they correct with mixing mm -hmm. sure sorry so he's got a factor deficiency. there's no evidence of an inhibitor anyway there's no evidence of an, of an inhibitor but he's got an anticardial and antibody that's positive. So, so this is a, an interesting point: is that hematology comments on this for antiphospholipid, the the guidelines, which are based on I think reasonable basic science evidence, says that unless you have a titer of forty or more, the antibody is very unlikely to be enough to cause a coagulopathy. Now, thirty-eight is pretty much the same as forty. Yeah. So I don't think that part bothers me so much. But hematology came by and said essentially, like they they do not believe that this is a thrombophilia. Like they don't think he has antiphospholipid syndrome, based on the the fact that these were bleeds without any clear evidence of thrombosis, and that these titers to their eye was relatively low. They were not particularly worried about the settle elevation in the INR. Although the bleeds, the pathology does show possible thrombosis. I mean, so so let's say you have. You have an arteritis with uh, let's this is a kidney biopsy. The kidney not biopsy. The kidney nephrectomy shows necrotizing. A, a necrotizing area, an area of ischemia, and maybe an arteritis, right? Correct. So right. you can't tell whether there was a thrombosis there or not. I suppose you're right. You're right. If you had thrombosis, bleed, yeah, and then what you're finding is the necrotic tissue at the end of that. Yeah. Perhaps you, you're right. You wouldn't necessarily see the thrombosis. But it all depends, like on your your lens, right? Like if you're thinking that there could be a, a thrombophilia and you get a anticardiolipin antibody of 38, that's not going to dissuade me from thinking that there could be a thrombophilia. If on the other hand you're saying I think this is a vasculitic process of some kind or or an infectious process or whatever and you get an anticardiolipin antibody of 38, then you're saying that's a negative anticardiolipin antibody. Mm -hmm. So it really depends. It's all about pre-test. And you also get to, uh, th there are antibodies that we don't test that are part of the antiphospholipid syndrome. We just don't test them because they're either rare or their association with the disease is less clear than the three that we usually test. So you're right. Like maybe if you think this is antiphospholipid syndrome, you don't require the antibodies to make that subspecialty call. Like a hematologist can tell us, yes, this person has a thrombophilia, uh, even though the three that we test are negative. Right. So, so you're right. Like it, it, whether it's positive or negative, you can still make the call that this is a thrombophilia if that's what you think is going on. And just to support that, in the discussions, and there were a few discussions, that point was made several times. And depending on who made the point, it was either positive for the occasion or it dismissed the it dismissed the event, but it was it was continued to be brought up. The other things that are relevant, the SPEP is negative. I think that's relevant. The IgG is total IgG is positive, but we don't know the subclasses. Correct. Which we'll get at some point, I'm sure. Okay, we didn't get them, and there's a small pleural effusion. Don't know what to do with that. Like how small? Lots of people have small pleural effusions when they, especially when they've got a connective tissue disease. Like, I don't know if that's a Pretty small. I, I think it was felt to be too small to tap easily. Yeah. So that right. was that was left alone diagnostically. So not a whole lot like to push this forward. Is there anything on your mind at this point? I mean, we don't have the IgG subclasses, but we can look for IgG four disease on the biopsies. I'm assuming. You can. Is uh, this it, a, is this a like I don't know I I don't know that I've ever actually seen a case or recognized one. Is this a is this a uh, like illness script for IgG4? Like, 
I <laughs> no. Uh, so so IgG4 can come with. Uh, so it is supposed to be a fibroinflammatory disorder with characteristic pathologic features, which is the storyform fibrosis. It can come with eosinophilia and obliterative phlebitis. It can be associated with aortitis. However, I cannot find any cases that presented with organ rupture or, or hematoma. And I believe that I only found one case where renal arteries were involved. And that was actually felt to be a secondary vasculitis because of surrounding inflammation, not primary vasculitis that like that was the start or, or first location of the vasculopathy or vasculitis. So I think my review of the literature so far is that like this would be either extremely atypical or not part of the disease. But it is something that like I, similarly, like I, I, I was thinking about, and I think we, we talked about in clinic, mm-hmm because it can present with large medium vessel involvement. So I think the so if the IgG4s are elevated, it still doesn't diagnose the disease and if they're normal, it still doesn't rule out the disease. It's unfortunately like not sensitive and specific enough to be used that way. We don't get the results of the IgG4 subclasses, but I'm not sure that there was going to be anything diagnostic in them. Mm-hmm. And I think Vesna's uh, alluded to the fact and and Daniel did about the histology being the important aspect. And one of the frustrating issues was the fact that there was large amounts of tissue involved, each involving surgery, but little tissue to actually look at to try and make a diagnosis. So you'd think that you'd have this whole kidney or you'd have part of a liver and you could do all of the histology, but we didn't have any of that and it wasn't available. Why? I don't know. It wasn't done at the time, and we didn't. All we had left were the couple of slides that were there. Hmm. Okay. That was August. He's in the hospital for a while. He has some clever people thinking through the case. No formal diagnosis is made at that time, but certainly some thoughts were were brewing in people's heads. And I think that you've hit on all of the important ones. So he is well in between again, and then in February of 2016, he represents with left renal bleed. He goes to hospital, he has a laparotomy with clamping of the supraceliac artery and transferred to Vancouver for further management. There, the decision is made early on during his stay that this may represent an autoimmune or inflammatory condition, and he is given pulse steroids. Believe he was started on Imuran at that time or maybe a little bit later in the stay. But the, the worry was that he was having some kind of vasculitis or autoimmune condition. He undergoes an angiogram February 21st, and the report there says evidence of fibromuscular dysplasia in the main and accessory renal arteries. His hemoglobin, con- there's no ongoing bleeding at that point, but his hemoglobin keeps dropping. So he goes for another angiogram about eight days later. And this new angiogram shows a large pseudoaneurysm in the upper pole of the left kidney, which was not present on the earlier scan, and this was coiled. And they also mentioned multiple small peripheral pseudoaneurysms. He gets a repeat 10 days later, and this shows interval enlargement of one of the pseudoaneurysms, which was successfully coiled, but the other ones were decreasing in size. He has a a CTA of the abdomen, which showed pseudoaneurysms as described in, in the uh, angiogram. And he had an MRA of the head and neck, which was normal. What do you think? All right. Okay, so now I think I finally have the new bits of information to steer me away from this being a thrombophilia. I think I do. There's, I mean, all of these aneurysms or pseudoaneurysms, uh, they, they rep- th- so these can rupture spontaneously. They represent like a, a, an adequate alternative diagnosis to him having repeated clots with infarcts that I think I can drop that now because there's not really not enough other stuff to support a diagnosis of recurrent thromboses, I don't think. Question mark, fibromuscular dysplasia. Again, like this is not something that I know that much about except I have an illness script that includes young women, more than 50-year-old men, involving the renal arteries more than the liver, although this guy's had now these intrarenal arteries he's getting. Mm-hmm. He's getting, he's having these aneurysmal lesions inside the kidneys. Whereas yes. again, I think of FMD as being like a renal artery problem. So not sure what to do with that. 
there was some, and they, they described bead on string um, of the renal artery. Okay. Um, which would be kind of like medium, medium yep. vessel involvement. Could MPA not be? So you're wondering about like a small vessel vasculitis. Yeah. Yeah. So like, and I think we've, we have touched on this before that like just because something's like labeled as a small vessel, it doesn't mean it can't be a medium vessel. Mm -hmm. And just because something's a large vessel doesn't mean it can't be a medium vessel. But it could also be a medium vessel vasculitis as well. But did you get that flavor from any of his other presentations? Like, did this smell like vasculitis to you? No. So I think Vesna said... (laughs) wondered about the possibility of an aneurysm uh, early on, I think one of the first things you've said. So with, I guess, the in reflection, would you expect a vasculitis, if that's what it was, to be totally quiescent between catastrophes? No, I think that's what doesn't make it fit. Or if it was some kind of congenital or some kind of congenital disorder like FMD, why are things evolving? Like, why is this so quickly? Yeah, yeah. it's okay so for 50, this is, 50 odd years, right? And then all of a sudden, he's getting multiple catastrophic events over a six month period of time, and changes on angiogram over days to weeks, yeah, so that's not different. not months to years. I, I still think. I mean, at some point, he must have had a blood culture or some workup for endocarditis or something. Blood cultures were done during this admission, and, and sorry, and during the last admission. I, I must have forgotten to tell you those were negative. Blood cultures were negative. Syphilis? Great question. Syphilis is one of the only tests I cannot find looking back through this case. I think it's unlike. I, I think that is part of the workup the same way ANCAs are part of this workup mm-hmm. and cryos. Like, this would be a really bizarre presentation for both of those. It would be quite reasonable to send them. I don't think anyone would be against that. So, similarly, I think syphilis would be a reasonable test to send here. I, I cannot find it uh, you know, on my review, but someone may have done that elsewhere. Yeah. Well, what about giant cell arteritis? I mean, it's odd that it would be so quiescent between his episodes, but... Do you think that his age excludes him from giant cell arteritis? You said he was mid-50s? Mid-50s. I don't think so. I agree. So his age doesn't exclude him. What about like the similar disorder, Takayasu? I'd be less suspicious of Takayasu in him. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not. It doesn't fit my illness script for that. Kind of like, well, he's a he's a kind Male, of more middle aged. He's not gentleman. Southeast Asian, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. What do you want to do? So maybe again to put this in perspective, and I think at this point in his evolving process and with his hemoglobin dropping and the symptoms, I think he was in the ICU, and I think not not that he became hemodynamically unstable all the time, but because we had no anticipation and there was no warning that he would become unstable. And with this evolving process, he was put in the ICU. And another consideration was brought up, I, th- I, th- I think, by one of the ICU attendings, but I can't recall exactly. So that's how. So that that was the next step in, in this evolution. So that is a, a lead into just a little bit of content knowledge, because uh, we may decide that this is vasculitis, and I think that we have more clear illness scripts for those disorders. What I think we rarely see in internal medicine is vasculopathies. Mm -hmm. I think probably filling in a little bit of content knowledge there would be helpful. So considerations here would be Ehlers-Danlos type 4. So this is typically arterial or organ rupture. Uh, The most common organs, though, would be intestinal and uterine ruptures. People can have thin, translucent, fragile skin. They can have typical facies, which would be thin face, lips, and nose, large eyes, Hypermobility of small joints can be part of that. Pneumothorax, gingival recession, and it is associated with a collagen gene. What age do people usually present? I mean, again, to me, these are like diseases of childhood and early adolescence. I think what we're like, my impression from my pediatric rheumatology rotation is that like, even though we think of genetic diseases as like babies and children, sometimes just the polymorphism manifests in adulthood. So like genetic disorders aren't ruled out by age, I, I don't know the answer to like the specific age range for onset of symptoms of type 4. Again, this like really galloping course. Yes. It's I advancing agree. very quickly. Yeah. I agree. Other conditions like Marfan, so inherited 
connective tissue disorder, not the inflammatory kind, but the non-inflammatory kind, aortic root dilatation, dissections, lens dislocations, mitral valve disease, pneumothorax, uh, elongation of the long bones. And then an item that was brought up by the ICU, I believe, is segmental arterial mediolysis, or SAM. So this is a non-inflammatory arteriopathy, unknown cause. It's characterized by vacuolization of the outer aspect of the media, and then you get is that lysis of the media, medialysis. So the media actually gets pulled away um, or, or split down the middle, and it can ultimately lead to luminal stenosis and aneurysm. An important aspect of this disease is that it seems to spare the aorta, which so far has been spared. We've not seen any specific aorta involvement. We've seen large branches of the aorta involved. So that was felt to be like a possible answer. It can present with spontaneous bleeds. IgG4 doesn't really count as vasculopathy per se because it can have a, a very inflammatory characteristic to it. And we've already chatted about that diagnosis as well as fibromuscular dysplasia, um, which is typically a small and medium vessel, most frequently involving the renal arteries, the internal carotid arteries, vertebral arteries, and presenting symptoms can be stroke, aneurysm, renovascular hypertension, which may be more of the reason that it's brought to like the attention of internal medicine. But you can develop stenosis, occlusion, dissection, or aneurysm. So I think like there is certainly some overlap of these disorders with the clinical picture we're seeing, but I agree with Steph that like the galloping course, like the pretty tiny in like the course of this gentleman's life, this is like one second where like all of these things are suddenly happening with no other like specific symptoms that are pointing us to another disorder or a lifelong disorder of some kind. I'm also just reflecting on my own like practice. It's terrifying for me at this stage to learn entirely new diagnoses. So like (laughs) Sam. I never heard of that. Like, never heard of it. Don't know anything about it. Now, now I'm going to be reading about this for the next week and guaranteed never see a case for the rest of my life. So that's absolutely that well, is Which terrible. is why I said um, that this diagnosis was entertained by one of the ICU attendings who also probably hadn't heard of it, but who was who went to the literature. And I don't feel alone at your stage. And you, I also hadn't heard of this uh, entity. So it was a learning experience, and the paper was attached to the chart. It was actually a very good learning experience. Uh, I'm not sure that's the diagnosis. Maybe we'll hear more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that on the flip side of that, also the like inflammatory things and, and infectious diseases, but from the rheumatologic perspective, Takayasu and giant cell arteritis can have medium vessel involvement, PAN, Bechet's, antiphospholipid was brought up, and what about just straight up rheumatoid arthritis-associated vasculitis. I think that that diagnosis was felt to be less likely because rheumatoid vasculitis typically occurs in people who have raging, untreated, refractory disease. And this person, by all accounts, had actually like pretty good control of the arthritis, whatever label we apply to it. He was doing quite well. I spoke to him last night, and he actually, his report was actually after the first surgery he had, He's not had any joint pain since that time. The first, I have no idea what that means. Honestly, what does that mean? I don't know, but but he's quite specific. He says, my joints have been under excellent control. I feel really good from a joint perspective. So those are some considerations. I think all of those things were brought up um, throughout his course in hospital. So he was doing well as an outpatient after this admission. He stabilized, he's sent home with follow-up. He's continued on azathioprine and tapering steroids for a presumed vasculitis based on his presentation and everything that you have brought up. The progressive course, the changes in his aneurysms during short follow-up angiography, and the absence of uh, any like history to suggest anything like this, no family history, thought it was vasculitis. But how, again, how do you even, like, let's say you bite the bullet and give this guy immunosuppression. How will you adjust his treatment? Like, you don't know what you don't know what you're treating, which is okay. There's yeah. lots of things that we don't know what you're treating, but but like it's not like he has any symptom that you're going to be tracking or any blood that, work that you're going to track. So that is exactly what like the fear was sending him home from hospital <laughs> is that no one had any idea what to follow. Um, he didn't have any serologies that were helpful. He had no other systemic symptoms. It was just organs popping. And so in this case, the feeling was that the only objective feature to follow was the pseudoaneurysms. So he was going to be followed up with imaging. 
and on that basis tapered or not tapered from his immunosuppression. And, and, and Steph makes a very good point. I mean, the discussion after his initial admission here was just that. Yeah, the consideration of immunosuppressive therapy of some form was given, but what, what do we follow? How do we know it's this problem? How do we know it's not something else? And how do we know we're not hurting him? Which is exactly the point you made. I think uh, if like a vasculitis expert would be like, oh, like you can't just, it's not all the same thing. Like they don't all get the same amount of steroids for the same length of time. The other um, steroid sparing agent is different depending on which one you decide it is. So which label are you going to go with? I think at this point it was, it's late in the course, but it's too early to say. So I think medium vessel vasculitis was about as good as anyone could do at this moment. Mm Mm-hmm. So again, he is doing just fine as an outpatient. He comes back for a follow-up angiogram May of 2016, and this shows no pseudoaneurysms. There is, however, a right common femoral artery pseudoaneurysm that was identified and coiled. Had that been had the right femoral artery been imaged on any previous imaging? I believe that it had with one of the earlier angiograms, and it was negative. So you know that it's new. It's new. Jeez, ew. but that was the site. I think I don't recall. Wasn't that the site where he puncture? had his angiogram? So, so that's one item in the case. I cannot, uh, I can't find specific note of that. So I, the, I the report that. doesn't specifically comment on that. I'm not sure. That would be really relevant to know. Yeah. I know. <laughs> Although, so, so I mean, let's say, like, let's assume that it is, yeah. because that, what a weird place to like the others are really kind of small vessels or medium vessels. Now we're talking about a pretty, yeah, large vessel. I think that was the overall impression from everyone involved was that that did not represent an item in the case that required like a new change in therapy. Sure. I think everyone was happy to say overall it actually looks like whatever disease this is, it seems to be well controlled on immune suppression. Uh, let's not jump the gun on the femoral artery uh, pseudoaneurysm. So, so the take-home message from the May visit is that things are going great and in fact his disease is responding. Yeah. Yes. Great. Although, I got to say, so he's on prednisone still at this point? Uh, he was on tapering prednisone at that point, and Imuran is a thioprene. Okay. So could be that he's got a vasculitis responding to Imuran and prednisone, or an infection responding to Imuran and prednisone. I, like, I, like, I, you know, so he's got, I, all I can really say is that this man has a disease that appears to be responding to immunosuppression. That's, that's probably a good label. Uh, but, <laughs> that's a good diagnosis. <laughs> well, you know, a yeah. year into it, we're like, that's pretty, that's still pretty cloudy. Yeah. So, yeah. so at this point, essentially, the label becomes probable or possible PAN because it was felt this is, for all intents and purposes, a medium vessel, probably vasculitis. That's the pathology that we have from the first place. It said vasculitis with secondary bleed or bleed with secondary vasculitis looks more like vasculitis. So that's the label that he has at this point. He's been tested for hepatitis at some point. Yeah, so hepatitis serology was negative um, early on. So he does great for two years on Imuran and low-dose prednisone. He has no joint pain, no bleeding. He's essentially asymptomatic. He's going back to work as as a mechanic, and he's doing really well. So we're actually winding down to the more recent history which is ongoing. So his case remains open. But on April of 2018, he returned to hospital with abdominal pain and arthralgias. He had a CT of the abdomen and pelvis that showed mild circumferential fat stranding involving the lower abdominal aorta, extending to its bifurcation and proximal most right common iliac artery and extending around the proximal most IMA branch. The spleen is now enlarged at 20 centimeters. It was 18 in May of 2016. And he still has a small right pleural effusion with some atelectasis. This this is new information to me. Oh, uh, Barry's back in the game. Yeah. So, uh, no, this this is... uh, I Hold on. Okay, okay. So so you thought you had the diagnosis five minutes ago. I I thought the diagnosis was probably polyarteritis uh, nodosa with... But I thought the underlying etiology and associations to explain his other symptoms may have been Sjogren's, even though he clinically Sjogren's. Uh, he's got he's got um, his ser- the serology was compatible. Um, he had the, the cytopenias because we didn't have an explanation for that. So I thought that's where it was going. But I think now that I hear this, 
I would actually explore again the Shogun's, but I would certainly, I think IgG4 raises its head again, even though we haven't, this isn't the illness script, with his aorta being involved the way it is. And I, I just want to make sure everyone heard me say it's mild circumferential fat stranding. Sure, but the normal amount is none. Correct. Yeah. So, uh, is, but, but what all, all I'm saying is like we, we do not know what this means. But the aorta is involved. It is to, that correct? The, you had mentioned the, the aorta was involved aside from just fat stranding. So it's just the fat stranding. It's a CTA, right? It's like we don't really know about like vessel wall specifically. But there's inflammatory changes from the IMA to the branching of the iliacs. That's a lot. You know, that's Which really, t- it takes it out, in my mind, it takes it out of polyarteritis nodosa because of the vessel size, or we have a different, that we have that diagnosis and another diagnosis. I think whatever we're looking at, it's got to be a variant of that, right? Like, I, I don't think, like, this is fitting nicely into anyone's illness script for anything, unless there's, like, a group of diseases that we're just straight up missing. I also wonder, does it decrease the likelihood of this being pan? I think it is still on the differential, the same way a like a large vessel vasculitis is still on the differential for primarily medium vessel vasculitis. But I think what this at least suggests is that we are probably on the right track with the initial conceptual diagnosis that this is this is some kind of inflammatory disorder. It responds to prednisone and immune suppression. It flares and then remits. And now we're finding larger vessel involvement. So this is evolution of whatever that autoimmune uh, or inflammatory condition is. But, uh, but the other characteristic I think is important to mention, and many vasculitides occur, but they don't occur with aneurysms. So, so he has aneurysms that come, aneurysms that go, aneurysms that burst, but now he's got large vessel uh, inflammatory changes. And I think I, maybe this is a variant of PN, but, but I like your concept that it's, we can describe the events and the observations, but I'm not sure that I would stick as well just to PAN. I was more confirmed PAN before you told me this recent. So you would, you would reopen I think uh, so. the investigations for kind of brought, in, brought in the differential? I again. think so. Yeah, I agree. Fesna, what do you think? Well, I agree too, but now I... I test them for syphilis. <laughs> so you get syphilis serology and you get IgG4 subclasses. Yeah. I think that that's, that's really wise. Um, does he have, when you talk to them, does he have symptoms of Sjogren's? So no, actually, so we went over that specifically because the diagnosis of Sjogren's was in his chart, but didn't come from his treating rheumatologist. So I just wondered where precisely that diagnosis came from. Uh, I think it was probably in one of the internal medicine like resident notes okay. um, labeled that. I believe it was just based on the serology. So he actually reports never having any problems current or past with dry eyes, dry mouth, recurrent cavities, lymphadenopathy, uh, paratitis, hmm. right? Chogren's does not require those things, but that is commonly part of the diagnosis. So did he resolve from his present episode? His painful symptoms resolved after they pulsed him with steroids. On presentation, but I don't have any other additional imaging of the vessels, so no MRA available. I had to comment on on the actual like blood vessel walls. Part of that has to do with just access um, that he has up in the community that he's in. Hmm. This one's going to require follow up for me. Like I need to know the answer to those two questions: the serologies, the IgG four, or or he needs to be invited to come back down for an assessment. But yeah, I, I'm now. I I I wasn't. This wasn't slam dunk polyarteritis nodosa for me, and now it's less so. And yeah, like this is a really, it's the biggest vessel, uh, so I need to understand why that's involved all of a sudden. What would you do in terms of treatment for him at this point? Do you agree with kind of uh, putting the steroids back up, tapering slowly? Yeah, I mean, he, he appears to have responded to immunosuppression the first time, and he may very well just continue on the same treatment forever, just that I've got like real discomfort around not pinning down someone's diagnosis to something that is more clear to me. Like this is, I'd still say this is a really open question. I agree entirely. I think the, uh, I mean, his, uh, what was the dose of prednisone that he was on when, before he was pulsed when this all happened? Well, I don't know the answer to that. And, he, and the, the azathioprine, though, hadn't been changed. Is that correct? It's no, still, that was still at a, a weight-based dose. I yeah. believe it was 150. 150. So, uh, 
I mean, two things. One is the diagnosis is uncertain, and, and two, I think the therapy is still uncertain. I, I think that if he's having ongoing problems in spite of this, I think the therapy has to be challenged, and I think that... Uh, although although he, was, he was, like, having recurrent catastrophic events over the course of a year, sure. and then all of a sudden someone has bought him a year and a half or two years of being pretty stable. So. Absolutely, but I think, like, all, but he still has that that prodromal sure. splenomegaly, uh, and his disease was quiescent for some time, but, I mean, I would look at the possibility of rituximab in, in him, uh, given the fact that he's seemingly seems to have broken through. And I agree entirely. I think he needs to be reevaluated. Is there anyone else that you would involve in the case at this point? Like, is there, <laughs> who would you turn to for uh, fresh eyes other than the, the people in this room? I'd go over it with my best vascular surgeon, who's like an aorta expert. And I'd, if, if a good ID person hadn't, been involved already, I would have them have a look. So Vesna and I saw a patient, I think it was Vesna and I, that with uh, with a, a vasculopathy. And there's a vasculopathy, maybe it wasn't you, Vesna, but we, there's a vasculopathy clinic here. I don't know if you're aware of that, that basically sees people with unusual vascular diseases, and they involve genetics. So it's the Children's Hospital and a vascular surgeon and another person, and I'm not sure, so they hold that clinic once a month. Um, and I think at this point I would involve them, not so much for the particulars of the vasculitis, but the vasculopathy, which may still be uh, an important part of this. Would you expect these vasculopathies, any of them, to respond to immunosuppression? I'm going to say, in my mind, this guy responded to immunosuppression. Mm-hmm. I think so, too. Like, I, I totally agree. Like, I actually, I feel maybe maybe overconfident that like this does look like a vasculitis with secondary vasculopathy like sure uh, per- perhaps that like he is maybe he had the reason he was asymptomatic before his first one was because he had had some asymptomatic inflammation had some um, damage to the vessel secondary aneurysm and it did just randomly spontaneously rupture i feel like that's a better explanation than that he does have like some kind of underlying genetic vasculopathy or, or uh, yeah, genetic-based vasculopathy that is just now showing up and responsive or, or by coincidence, looks like it's responsive to steroids. I just don't believe in that coincidence in this particular case. I think that's, I think that's telling diagnostically. I, I don't disagree, I, I'm, but uh, what I'm saying is I think that until we have some tissue or some diagnosis, we'll be having this discussion over and over and over again until the next event. And so, uh, you know, I, I think that somehow we have to, and maybe the next investigation, including the things we've talked about, is to involve our vascular surgery colleagues and to try and get an artery, get a piece of an artery. Just but, not the aorta. Yeah. <laughs> Just not well, the aorta. But, but, in it, but <laughs> here, we, here we are. I mean, what vessels would we go after? How would we do it? So I don't know. I'm, I'm surprised to hear this. So thanks for tuning in. If any of our listeners have seen a similar case or have other thoughts they would like to share, you can go to stpaulsmorningreport.com to get in touch. Our email address is foundationmorningreport at gmail.com. And if your clue leads to us solving one of our mystery cases, then you can take one item of your choice from my apartment and and it's yours. (laughs) That's your reward. So thanks so much and see you next time. Thanks, Andy. Thank you. Thank you.